in his room they found a book, uh, a notebook full of details of the uh, of the Harrier jump jet. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Harry served as a soldier in the British Intelligence Corps in Germany in the 1960s and 70s. His role was that of an intelligence and security operator focused on the identification of foreign and other malign activities which might undermine the effectiveness of the UK's military presence in the country. Accordingly, he had experience of a range of security investigations and close liaison with the West German civil and military security authorities. Now, I'm sure you are enjoying your weekly dose of Cold War history and you would like to continue to do so. So I'm asking if you wouldn't mind supporting us by paying at least three US dollars a month. Higher amounts are welcome too, but it's very straightforward and you can stop whenever you want. Plus, monthly supporters get the marvellous Cold War Conversations coaster too. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. You can also help the podcast by leaving written reviews in Apple as well as sharing us on social media. So back to today's episode. Harry and I talk in detail about his service using the new wireless microphones kindly paid for by our financial supporters. We welcome Harry to our Cold War Conversation. I got to meet a number of the guys from the Intcor guys who were in the local uh, counterintelligence company. They used to come and visit as usual. And uh, I got chatting with them and uh, they said to me, why, you know, why did you come and transfer? And I said, well, I, I did initially want to join the intelligence corps when I first joined the army. Well, in, initially I wanted to join the military police. But they wouldn't let me. They said, because you, you're wearing glasses and you, you know, you don't meet the standards. Um, so I said, okay, well, what's the alternative? And intelligence score was one of them. And they looked up a book and said, well, sorry, you know, but you, the standards for the uh, eyesight are the same as for the RMP. So you wouldn't be able to join that either. So I thought, couldn't do it. I only found out many, many years later, that they'd actually been consulting a book that was about 10 years out of date, and I would have been able to join. But, uh, as you know, I didn't, so I joined the... Uh, that's when I joined the Camerons instead. And um, so anyway, they got talking, and they said, no, you know, there's no problem about glasses in the core. Uh, so I said, well, sounds interesting. And... Uh, I went down for an interview in Dusseldorf for the headquarters of the uh, the local company, which was for CI company as was then counterintelligence company. And uh, I met the company commander, uh, smashing guy called uh, Dimmy Dimmock. He was Maltese, been in the course since 1941, and uh, gone to MC, you know, he's a smashing old guy. And uh, we got on very well. And uh, he said, yeah, well, you know, I'll recommend you for acceptance. Um, so I put my application in and it went through and uh, 
he said, well, before you actually transfer, he said, uh, you better come and do a month with us attached to the company. So I said, fine. So I went, um, spent a month down there in Dusseldorf. It's supposed to be a month. But as it happened, the chief clerk uh, was taken ill and they didn't have a chief clerk. So uh, he said to me, well, you know, you can do military clerical work and everything because I've done the sort of thing with the, uh, the various jobs in the battalion. Uh, and uh, I stayed doing that for about three or four months, wasn't it? Uh, and uh, Fran was still in married quarters up in uh, uh, Osnabrück. Uh, two two boys by then, and uh, so she she was up there looking after them, and I was commuting from Dusseldorf every week. And um, then they they said, "Okay, fine, we've got a course starting at Ashford." Uh, and I went over to Ashford, uh, did my course, was accepted into the Corps, and that was it to transfer. Right. Uh, and and the counterintelligence in the British Army of the Rhine in, mm. in the mid-1960s, that, yep. that's trying to counter Soviets, that, trying to... Yeah, that was the main thing. It was uh, There were two sides of it, really. There was the uh, protective security, and then there was the uh investigative uh stuff uh investigating thefts and losses of weapons and ammunition and classified material and that sort of thing um my first posting was back to full company uh dimmy dimmer specifically asked for me to come back to the company uh and so i was posted to dusseldorf we were in a little hutted camp called Rhine Centre, which was right on the North Park in Dusseldorf. Uh, a nice little place. There were just ourselves and uh, the BSSO, which is the British Services Security Organisation. That was uh, basically, I suppose, it was a uh, it was an offshoot of MI6 with a, a few MI5 people attached to it, uh, and uh, so we were there. They were in the next building to us. And my job, my first job was, uh, I was desk officer for protective security. We had four, five sections, uh, in four company. Number one section was based in Belgium, Robbendonk at the advanced base. Uh, number two section was in Dusseldorf. Uh, and number three section was in Munster. Number four section was in Dortmund, and number five section was in Rhein-Dahlen, which was the headquarters of British Army of the Rhine. Each of those sections, they had the job of carrying out uh, protective security surveys and inspections. There was a sort of rolling program of these, and so that every unit uh, in BAOR had uh, a security survey every, I think it was every three years, every two years, three years, I can't remember now. Uh, and in the intervening years, they had a security inspection, which was a sort of uh, a shorter version of that. And uh, they had, they would submit the report to us at headquarters. And uh, my job was to go through them and sort of correct the uh, spelling and the grammatical errors. And of course, we never had any of those with the intelligence score. Uh, and uh, also to just to make sure that the 
uh, report stood up that the recommendations matched the faults that had been identified. And, and, so and what sort of faults would you be identifying oh, there? All sorts of things like uh, uh, physical faults, like a building hadn't been constructed to, an armory hadn't been constructed to the correct standards. Um, I mean, ridiculous things. I mean, uh, we had one where, which for years had passed inspection uh, because there were uh, supposed to be steel plates uh, over the windows of the armory. And in fact, uh, uh, they actually turned out to be made of pressed asbestos, but they'd been painted steel battles through grey. And if you knocked on them, they sounded metallic. But uh, one of our uh, NCOs, who was a little bit more enthusiastic than the rest, took a, a little, a, an auger to it and was able to drill a hole right through. So, uh, uh, silly things like that were found. And, uh, you know, uh, mishandling of keys and uh, procedure for uh, securing classified documents because uh, you know documents were classified in various grades, restricted, confidential, secret and top secret with sort of levels of security uh, differing for each one and uh, we had to make sure that the, the, all the documents were being handled correctly and all the documents were actually in fact there that should be there you had silly things like that. Things like, uh, I remember one that I did later on, uh, who was actually in a, a YMCA, would you believe? A, a, a sweet, sweet and tobacco stall basically run by the YMCA. But because it was attached, they were given the document uh, about, um, the emergency plans in the event of Soviet invasion, you know, where you go and where you hide and that sort of thing. And this was classified confidential, which is, you know, not a vastly important thing, but it nevertheless was supposed to be held under secure conditions. And uh, I, I had to go and do a routine check on this place. And I said, uh, where do you keep your uh, emergency plans? Oh, she's here and pulled out the drawer and showed me the copy. So, you know, everything from that up to the fact somebody losing a... Uh, a top secret file and then you'd have to go into full investigative mode and start tracking down what had happened to it and where it had gone uh that i I had one top secret investigation uh later on when i was in plymouth uh but mostly you know it was just minor faults and our our procedure was that we were there to help the units the, the, the RAF, for example, uh, I, I worked quite a lot with the RAF, Problem Security Services, and their procedure at that time was police style. They would go in and they would virtually bang somebody up if they had a document. They'd go in and they'd pretend to be in the Salvation Army. And they'd try and swipe somebody's classified documents. Later on, I was, we had the first wing of the RAF regiment. Uh, that had been formed since days of Cyprus. They were sent over to act in an infantry role, and they happened to be based in the area that I was covering. And uh, I went down to introduce myself, and there was absolute panic that, you know, somebody from the security team had come to visit them. They were, and I said, no, no, hang on, we don't do that. We're here to help you. And, you know, and that, that was our procedure right the way through. We were there to guide people and advise them. Uh, well, not not to get them punished for anything, just to make sure it didn't happen again. 
uh, and uh, that was actually probably not so good a thing for me to do because uh, with the RAF from that moment on, uh, they'd ring me up at three o'clock in the morning to say that they'd miss, mislaid one round of nine millimeter ammunition, you know. Uh, but anyway, that was all. Come back to Germany. Uh, as I say, we had uh, security surveys. They were the, the detailed ones. And then inspections of the intervening years, which were slightly less in detail. We also, of course, uh, we were responsible for the vetting of civilian employees. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Uh, which involved liaising with the German police uh, with uh, its into the car 14, 14K, which was German equivalent special branch. And uh, they, we had to liaise with them and check people's records before they were employed. And uh, counter-sabotage surveys on uh, sensitive sites and places like that. And and with the, the civilian employees, for mm. example, I mean, did you what what would what would have been the grounds for rejection there of uh, well any connection really with with east germany or the communist family connections with the, with east germany uh criminal records uh, to a certain extent uh, obviously you couldn't stop some of your traffic offenses but criminal records uh, we had they were checked out mm. and uh, they would they would be grounds for non-employment uh, right and any left-wing affiliations? Well, yeah, or? but we would we we wouldn't have records of that, but we used to check that out with the uh, uh, with the German authorities, the LFE, which is the Bundesamt für Verfassungsschutz, the and the Bundesamt für Verfassungsschutz, that the federal land and federal offices for the protection of the constitution, which is the German equivalent of MI five in the security service. And uh, they, you know, their records were kept, and we also liaised, of course, with the uh, MAD, which is the German equivalent of the uh, our intelligence corps, and uh, of course with the German civil police. Yeah, had very good relations with the German civil police. And did you did you find any any evidence of any were, weirdness, or was it just really cock ups most of the time, or or people not being careful enough with on security? The, on the security side, it was mostly cock ups. Yeah, I mean, you know, people, security regulations can be awkward at times and oppressive. Our main problem, in fact, was we're having battles with the uh, the safety people, uh, the fire services. For example, we had uh, one of the gunner regiments was uh, equipped with uh, the, with rapier, which at the you know, the air defence, which at that time was very, very highly classified. 
And so we had to go around and do surveys on the um, regiment bases and their all their the the garages in place where all the missiles and the trailers and that were and the control equipment was all stored. And so our attitude was this has got to be made secure, so it had to be locked up in the keys with. And of course, the fire service would be going around and saying, no, 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 it's got to be left open and the, the keys have got to be immediately available. Um, and so that was a thing that was always a problem. We had to uh, argue it out with the powers that be as to which was more important, safety or security at that time. Uh, some of them were never resolved. Yeah, mm. yeah. No, I, I, I can imagine. D- did you have any involvement with Soxmiss? Well, I personally didn't because we had a detachment and their full-time job was chasing after Soxmiss. Um, the, but we all knew about Soxmiss and we all knew what we had to do. And we had, we, we had to go around and do security lectures to various units. And, and Soxmiss was part of the subject we had to cover. We had to tell them what it was and what they did and what their job was to do if they spotted a Soxmiss vehicle. Uh, we were much kinder to Socksmiths than Socksmiths were to Bricksmiths. So I understand yeah. from some of the uh, Bricksmiths guys That's that, right, I've, yeah. That, yeah. that I've spoken to. But it's interesting because Socksmiths is a relatively unknown part of the, the Cold War, as, as is Bricksmiths yeah. to some degree, but Socksmiths yeah. to an even greater degree. Yeah, well, every soldier uh, in BOR was issued with a card uh, telling what Socksmiths was and showing the... Uh, the plate markings on the vehicles and telling what they had to do if they spotted it had to be reported immediately. And there were teams of military police who used to chase them around in marked cars. And there were our people who used to follow them around in unmarked cars. And one of the other jobs that we had, um, was escorting the, uh, missiles, uh, which were, came in, uh, at Antwerp and were picked up by uh, the, at that time, it was the Royal Malta Artillery, which, despite its name, was an actual regiment of the British Army. Uh, but it was a transport regiment by this time. They no longer were gunners. And uh, they were based in Mulhan. And their job was to go and pick up the missiles and drive them through into Germany for delivery to the various uh, missile units. And And what? These were conventional? Missiles. Yes. Yes. Right. Uh, well, they they, they they were uh they they did have nuclear capability, but uh, moving the nuclear part of it was a different thing altogether. But um, part of our, one of our jobs was to go and escort the uh, the convoys in uh, civilianized cars. The military police were there in their uh, Land Rover or jeeps, champs, and all of them. And, um, we would, we'd be buzzing around in Volkswagens, uh, with BFG plates on them, standing out a mile. Um, but the interesting thing was that the motor artillery, <laughs> uh, smashing guys, but they had absolutely no idea of, uh, security or what they were driving because they'd come to a, a crossroads. And the convoy would split and they'd go in four different directions. And of course, the military police would be shooting off in two directions trying to find them. 
and we'd have to go and try and round up the ones that had gone in the third direction. And um, you'd, we'd drive up alongside in a civilianized car, albeit with BFG plates on, and uh, sort of hang out the window and wave them down. And the guy would stop and say, what's the matter? We'd say, follow us. And we'd take them, and they'd turn around and follow us, and we could have led them into East Germany, but uh, <laughs> they'd follow us, and we'd re- help reunite them with the convoy. But that was that was a fun job, that. And the, you mentioned the anti-sabotage yeah. prevention. Were, yeah. So so were you sort of, this was against, like, Spetsnaz units? or Yeah, again, it, when you do a counter-sabotage, you have to... Uh, put yourself in the mind of somebody who's coming to sabotage the place and look at all the vulnerable parts of it and uh, recommend what you can to make those vulnerable parts less vulnerable. And again, that was something I did later on. But while we were in Germany, there were various things. There was various uh, uh, missile storage sites and nuclear storage sites which were uh, had permanent military armed guard on them. And uh, I remember we had one, uh, and the unit that was doing the guards had taken um, uh, uh, detectors, uh, detecting equipment, and put it out all round. And uh, mad panic on one occasion because one of these went off. They went to find it, and it had been stolen. And uh, we eventually got the guy who'd done it. And it was an 18 year old kid who'd found this thing sort of lying beside uh, uh, in a ditch. Uh, and he thought, oh, that's interesting. He picked it up and taken it home with him. So, what was this? Like a motion detector or yes, something? Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. okay. That, that got quite a bit of a stir at the time. We had uh, half of the, uh, the, the police in Germany looking for it. Right. But. Uh, Right, and because this was before the Red Army faction or any any of those uh, Yes, it was. Yeah, it was, that that sort of came later on in the thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and you you mentioned working on some uh, a top secret case in in Plymouth. Yeah, yeah. We okay, from after Dusseldorf, uh, we moved to Plymouth, twenty four brigade, which was an air portable brigade. They were, they were the first, the spearhead units. I was a, a sergeant in charge of the counterintelligence detachment. The brigade went across to Denmark on exercise, and I was should have gone with them, uh, but I had a, a, an attack of kidney stones, and I was in the hospital at the time they went. So I, I spent a few days in the hospital, and I came out and was okay again. Um, and when the brigade came back, uh, about three, four weeks after they came back, we had a big uh, check on all the doc- classified documents and everything. And lo and behold, there was a top-secret document missing. And uh, I had the job of tracking it down. And uh, eventually I managed to track it down, and I, we recovered it. Uh, it had been left in... Uh, one of the brigade headquarter locations in Denmark. Uh, well, we knew who'd done it, but uh, was brushed under the carpet, and uh, not by me. I said, "Well, look, the, you know, this is a, a top secret document. This is this is compromised. All the material in it is, you know is now 
got to be compromised past as you know been available to the enemy and uh, we had quite a standoff uh, the brigade staff were not happy because it was one of them that had left it there and I was reporting uh, so I had to report to them and I said well look it, it, we've got, it's got this has got to be reported because it's a top secret document which has been compromised so you know, all the material in it has got to be changed and everything and uh, they, there was a certain standoff between myself and the brigade staff. And uh, I got a rather nasty annual report out of it. And the interesting thing is actually only about six months ago, I got all my confidential reports from my entire service. And uh, I, this is reminding me of this. There's this report saying that I was, you know, how dare I say this? Fortunately, because of the people who were writing my confidential report at that time were not intelligence score. There had to be part three of my confidential report had to be written by an intelligence score officer who happened to be the senior in corps officer in Southern Command. So he knew what was happening on so, uh, my side. And uh, so he wrote a bit which cancelled out all the bad things which, had they stood, would have virtually finished my career at that point but the person who was careless with the document never received any sanction at all as far as I'm aware uh, we got the document back and they said oh we got it back and go back in there wow but, so what did they do leave it in a drawer somewhere or worse than that they left it out just lying on a desk <laughs> and to make it even worse was the place that they'd left it in which had been the brigade headquarters for a period of, during the exercise uh, had subsequently been used as a, a, a transit lounge for troops of all other nationalities involved in the exercise and you know so I mean God knows how many hundreds of people could have been sitting there bored to tears and see this line there. Oh, we'll have a look through this. And presumably it said top secret on yeah, the top. Yeah, big red crosses on it. And top well, you'd secret. absolutely open that yeah, and have a look yeah, at it, wouldn't absolutely. you? Absolutely. But uh, <laughs> as I say, things were hope. Hopefully, it wouldn't happen now. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, I've I've read and and speaking to the Bricksmith guys as well. Obviously, you know, the, a lot of the ways they got their intelligence was by going through rubbish dumps absolutely. and, and yep. just stuff yep. that just got left behind. Yep, absolutely. They. Uh... And was so- I mean, I, I know you weren't directly involved with Socksmiths, but were, do you know if Socksmiths were ever caught doing that or or trying? They were to? well, or trying to. I don't. I don't know yeah. whether they were actually caught at it. Um, but uh, they uh, certainly they were stopped on many many occasions, just as Brixmas were. But as I say, we, you know, we were not allowed to use firearms or anything. But we were uh, uh, troops were advised to sort of block them in with vehicles, uh, and uh, that happened on lots of occasions. It was yeah. big excitement for a squaddy to find a Socksmith car, you know. Yeah. Yeah, well, it seems there were loads of squaddies who never ever saw one. Well, the, you so know, they the, were. The, I mean, there was a big area. And there weren't yeah. all that many of them. I don't yeah. know how many uh, Socksmiths cars there were, but so it, when you're back in in Dortmund, this is then from there we moved on. 
uh, came back to Plymouth and then yep. posted to Dortmund. Yeah, right. And there you're you're working in the Ruhr. Um, and was that similar work to so, what you were doing before? Same sort of thing, except that uh, uh, whereas in uh, in Dusseldorf I'd been based at the headquarters and checking other people's reports. I was now out in the field commanding a team, producing those reports. So I was involved in doing the uh, protective security surveys and uh, security investigations and that sort of thing and uh, vetting. Uh, we had a big MSO. That's a, the MSO is the Mixed Services Organization. This was a civilian, a civilianized team, teams of uh, laborers, drivers, uh, general... Uh, which can, they were Eastern European, uh, East Germans, refugees, I mean, all recruited, all wore green uniforms, and they were all under the British Army, and uh, we had all the jobs to do vetting and investigating. We had all sorts of strange investigations with them. I remember we had one where a guy had died, uh, and uh, he, he, he'd uh, been lying in his room for a few days before they realized he wasn't around anymore because he was supposed to be on leave. And uh, anyway, when they finally uh, broke his door open, uh, he he was there, but he had quite a considerable amount of money tucked away uh, under his mattress. And, um, of course, there was a big, big concern about how he got it, and, you know, um, what he'd been doing that, could possibly be of value to somebody else. Uh, it turned out he'd just been hoarding it. He'd never spent anything on himself. He'd, he'd never had, had no clothing of his own other than his, what was issued to him, and no possessions, mm. and all his money was just being squirreled away. You mentioned you were employing, employing East Germans in this. Yeah, the refugees, yeah. Right. The, and Provided they got through the, the, vetting, the initial vetting procedure. Okay. Um, you know, there was nothing known against them. Then, you know, as they were refugees, then they, they would, uh, you know, they, they were allowed to join the MSO. Yeah, because that's the, obviously one of the classic ways that they used to infiltrate Absolutely. people into yeah. the West was, yeah. was posed, <coughs> posing as a refugee. That's right. But the MSO, of course, they did the jobs that the local West Germans thought were beneath them, you know, cleaners, drivers, laborers, that sort of thing. Mm. So but valuable roles if somebody's ab- going to leave a top secret absolutely. document on their desk for yep. <laughs> yeah. however long. Yeah. So oh, okay, okay. In in your time with military intelligence, I mean, what what was the was there anything where you thought I just do not believe that that's that's happened or or anything that was sort of like you, you particularly remember because it was so odd. Unbelievable. I'll tell you one, but you won't be able to use it. We had one of the units, which was a 100% vetted unit, and uh, one, uh, one of their guys went absent, well, two, two of the guys went absent, uh, and we had a whisper that one of them had been involved with a girl who was tied in with uh, one of the... Uh, anti-nuclear uh, crowd. And so we actually had to show an interest in it. And uh, eventually they came back. 
and uh, we hauled them in for interview. And this particular guy, we were uh, had him in for a chat. It turned out there was no there was no security implication in it because he uh, he hadn't been with with the girl, and it was, they'd just gone off on the lash instead. Uh, you know. uh, but he did admit that uh, he he was a cook, and that he and a fellow cook uh, used to uh, into the porridge. And I had the job of telling his commanding officer this. And uh, I remember the, he was very sort of florid-faced chap. And I, I told him this, and he literally blanched, and the, the colour drained from his face. You could see a line of white going down his face. And he, he sat down and he called, Julian, get in here quickly. And the adjutant came running. Yes, Colonel, what's that? He said, this chap here, he never worked in the mess, did he? <laughs> but uh, as I say, you, you, that probably won't go. Into well, that that is there. pretty. Yeah, I mean <laughs> that that was that was one I wasn't I wasn't expecting there. But, no, but uh, that's uh, that was one of the things that stuck with me. Were there situations where you know, like this one, where you know the the soldier was allegedly having a relationship with an anti-nuclear protester, but but somebody who just went AWOL and you were concerned... Well, we were they... concerned because of the this relationship that we heard that he had. Yeah. Uh, the, because he was in a, a fully vetted unit where everybody in the unit had to be vetted, vetted because of the role. Um, obviously, you know, we had to take an interest in absentees. Mm. Uh, I mean, they're always absentees and you don't normally interest, but in, in that particular case, we were interested. We had another one where um, it was at the time that the Harrier jet was being introduced, and that, again, at the time was highly secret, you know, the jump jet. What, a guy went on leave from one of the signal regiments, yeah, signal regiment, and um, while he was on leave, for some reason they had cause to turn his room out, and... Uh, in his room, they found a book, uh, a notebook, full of details of the uh, about the Harrier jump chat. And they'd been on exercise with the Harriers uh, only the week before he went on leave. So there was a, a little bit of a, a, a panic about that. And uh, I called in my opposite number in the RAF PNSS. And uh, he said, Christ, we, we want to see him. I mean, you know. So I put a word in with the regiment and said, look, as soon as he comes back, bang him up in the guard room, no, not speak to anybody, and call me immediately. Um, and uh, they duly did this, and I got dragged away from what should have been a very good uh, social night. But uh, And so I went up and I called my opposite number from the RAF, and we went in, and uh, it was his interview because the stuff was... RAF information, and uh, he gave this guy a really hard time. Uh, and uh, it turned out he was he was just an, an interested in aircraft. And he didn't know what he was writing down, uh, so there was nothing in it from our side. But uh, uh, he, he didn't get punished for it. He was just spoken to severely and warned that he shouldn't go writing things down. But that, that was the, the nearest I came to an actual uh, major investigation. We did have one 
uh, case where we were asked to uh, uh, help a, a, a Scotland Yard special branch, and the couple of guys from the branch came out. They wanted to see uh, a soldier from the Royal Irish Rangers, which was in our area. So uh, we uh, we put them up and uh, made the arrangement, took them around uh, to do the interviews and everything. And again, we we weren't involved in that side of it. But while they were staying with us, when they came out, they were introduced as both detective inspectors. And uh, we put them up in our homes. We, you know, different guys in our section had one of them staying with each of them. And um, we took them out on the thrash down the town to go into the red light area and everything and, uh, into the blue film uh, pubs where all the squaddies used to go. And they, they for coppers, they were amazingly naive. Uh, they'd never seen some of these things before. Um, and it, anyway, we got talking, and it turned out that one of them was at, at DI, the other one was a detective constable. And the reason they both uh, claimed to be DIs was because they, having worked with army units before, they'd found that they would be separated, and the DI would be in the officer's mess, and the DI, uh, the, the DC or the DS would be sent either to Sans mess or into a bunkhouse somewhere and so they decided they didn't want to and of course they were quite amazed that they they were actually staying in people's homes with us yeah uh, yeah but uh, I'll say unfortunately that one we never got the result of it because uh, that was a branch case right right uh, um, were there were there any cases of uh, British troops crossing into East Germany not the not in our area we didn't have anything like that. Uh, when I was transferring into the Corps, um, it was at the time when uh, Corporal Brian Patchett, uh, he defected to uh, East Germany. And uh, I remember the uh, 2IC and 4 Company uh, absolutely all walking around with distraught, saying, my God, you know what? You, you know, Member of the corps, member of the imp corps, gone over. Oh God! So this was somebody from the intelligence corps. Oh, yeah, yeah. Corps. You can Google him. Brian Patchett is. Uh, yeah, I think actually, I think he came back about five years ago. But he, you know, this was in 1966 uh, when he went across. Wow! Yeah, and he presumably knew. Reasonable amount of information I would that would have been so, useful yeah, to yeah. the East Germans. Yeah, I think he was singing. Uh, right. So, and uh, what what was his reason for crossing? I can't remember now. Okay, I'll, so, I'll look I'll it say up. You Google him, Brian Patchett, P A T C H E T. He was uh, one of your own. One of our own. Yeah, as bad as Anthony Blunt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. We 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 did have we did have one or two. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it's just interesting because um, I interviewed a American who crossed into East Germany uh, via Austria when Austria was occupied yeah. by the Soviets or part of it was occupied in the 50s and it was quite interesting talking to him and I'm aware there were other uh, defections but I I'm not sure I'd heard of I'd heard of that one. Yeah, so, oh, it was uh, a big thing at the time, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, look that, I'll, I'll look that one up. 
If you like what you're hearing, sign up to our email list at coldwarconversations.com. And we have further photos, videos and information on this episode in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Don't forget, if you'd like to get one of those Cold War Conversations coasters to help keep us on the air, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. And if you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information